Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It was no caffeine? Yeah. So no caffeine tea? I'd be, I could no alcohol? I'm dead. No smoking? No yeah. sex? Yeah, that's it. The whole thing, it just sounds no fun. <laughs> Breakfast, we are constantly and rather tediously told, is the most important meal of the day. And what would breakfast be without the humble breakfast cereal? Shreddies, Frosties, Cocoa Pops, Weetabix, and of course, the classic cornflakes. Kellogg's cornflakes, arguably the most iconic breakfast cereal of all. And for good reason, because it was this product that really launched breakfast cereals as we know and love them today. But as with all good invention stories, it isn't quite as simple as just a good idea at the right time. The history of cornflakes is wrapped up in 20th century health fads, changing times, and the mother of all family feuds. This is Patented, a podcast about the history of inventions from History Hit. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell, and today I am joined by Sarah Wasberg-Johnson, a food historian and breakfast cereal expert, no less, to tell us the incredible story of how cereal became the breakfast staple. Welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you with me. You're a food historian. I am, yes. That's the best thing. I, You know, it's one of those jobs of like, what is a food historian? And then I did a bit of research about you. And basically, you have the most interesting job ever. I was learning all about apples. You did an episode of your podcast on apples. And now I became absolutely fascinated by the history of apples and such. Yeah, well, the great thing about food is that everybody can relate to it. And the great thing about history is that there is an infinite amount to study. Yeah, But also, it's kind of one of those things we don't really think about food and history. But then, of course, the way that we eat and the stories of food are so wrapped up in culture and in different ways and where we're from and where we are in the timeline. It's just really, really interesting. Which brings us to today's topic, ladies and gentlemen. I went to the shop just now before 10 minutes ago. I haven't bought cornflakes, I realized, for like years and years and years. Do you eat cornflakes still? Are they people? I do still eat breakfast cereal. But not um, I tend to go for the slightly sugary mm, kinds of breakfast cereal, not the super sugary, like little kid ones. No. Well, there was um, really, I, I was in the aisle just now in my local shop looking for, and I couldn't see cornflakes. I asked the woman there, I said, Do you have cornflakes? And she said, Yeah, they're right in front of you. And I've got the box here. I'm so used to that box. It's so familiar from my childhood. And I'm holding up the Kellogg's. The classic Kellogg's cornflake box with the cockerel on it. It sort of just became invisible to my sightline because there's so many other cereals now, a million different kinds of cereals that vie well, for my attention. It's a very classic design also. So probably all the colourful designs were competing. Yeah, but also the sort of Kellogg's logo as well, that autograph. And we can talk about that. I'm going to pour myself some Kellogg's cornflakes. This is the first time I've had cornflakes in years and years. So I've got some cornflakes here. I'm pouring them into my bowl. You can hear how... 
deliciously crunchy they are. I've got some ice cold milk from the fridge. Oh, I forgot a spoon. Hang on. <laughs> Talk amongst yourselves. Sorry, I forgot my spoon. I'm going to have a little taste because it's been such a long time. I used to have them a lot when I was a kid. In America, presumably, they were popular. Are they still popular? I think so. Yeah, I think in particular, people of Gen X and younger have a lot of childhood nostalgia about breakfast cereal. That's, sure. exa that's exactly it. As a Gen Xer myself, like I grew up on, you know, on breakfast cereal, Weetabix, Shreddies. Slightly different. I think the ones we have in the UK are slightly less sweet than your American ones. You guys yeah, love American, putting sugar on things. American breakfast cereals, especially those marketed to children, mm. historically have been loaded with sugar. Really like post-World War II is when you get the explosion of really sugary breakfast cereals. Because of course at that time, Sugar was considered not like we consider today, which is a lot of people think it's a toxin, right? Or an addictive substance. Historically, it gave you energy, right? Well, it's yeah. pure carbohydrate. Well, presumably so. we evolved as a species to like sugar because it gives you lots of energy. But now it's so abundant. and Historically, it was a much more scarce ingredient. Mm. And I think historic peoples really until the 20th century are much more concerned with getting enough calories to survive than we are today. We, today, most people in the Western world have the opposite problem. I was down at the Museum of London a few years ago filming a thing, and we had loads of human skulls, okay, that dated back kind of Roman times all the way through to the modern day. And you look along the teeth of all these skulls, and there's a particular skull where suddenly tooth decay hits. There's no tooth decay before, but then suddenly you just see tooth decay, tooth decay, tooth decay, when sugar suddenly became abundant and ubiquitous and everywhere. And right. And if I'm remembering correctly, because I'm more of a 19th and 20th century food historian than an ancient world food historian, but if I'm remembering correctly, it's sometime in the medieval period when all of a sudden, there's this huge influx of sugar into the UK and people who previously only the very wealthy could access refined sugar, certainly, and only maybe if you had beehives, you could have honey. But otherwise, there's no other natural source of sugar in the UK. So getting this influx of cane sugar really had a huge impact on people's diet and people's health. Just before we get started and look at the introduction of breakfast cereals, in particular cornflakes is what we're interested in, what did people used to eat for breakfast? Yeah, so there's a wide variety. If you go back far enough, most often people were eating leftovers for breakfast. You may have only had two meals a day, depending. So you get the development of things like hash, you know, which is leftover chopped up meat and starchy root vegetables, most often potatoes and in the modern era. But then you also have cooked cereal grains, so things like oats, things like wheat. You do start to get some refinement of cooked cereals, so you get like farina, semolina, that kind of thing. Cornmeal mush is very popular in the United States because, of course, corn is one of the easiest and most abundant grains here in the U.S. So, But it's always hot. And, you know, really until the late 19th century, most of the population in the United States, and this may be true of the UK as well, uh, is living in rural areas doing hard physical labor, manual labor. So most people were doing quite a bit of manual labor before they ate breakfast. And so breakfast was a large, hot meal. Your main meal of the day was in the middle of the day. And then supper was much, much lighter. In fact, a lot of foods that we associate with breakfast today in the 18th and 19th century were more associated with supper. So pancake dishes, eggs, 
hash cooked cereals you know sweet, that's really sweet, interesting because i mean we always talk about oh breakfast is the most important meal of the day but there's been i guess such a massive cultural shift towards dinner or supper depending on where you're from being the kind of main meal of the day i mean i don't know whether that's just an american uk western phenomena or whether you see that all over so the there's, world there's really two things that play with the shift to the evening meal mm. being the most important meal of the day. One of them is that's how the wealthy ate. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. the evening is when, you know, you're visiting, you're going to dinner parties, you're going to parties and stuff. And so your breakfast, which is also very influential, how the wealthy ate breakfast is maybe 11 o'clock, noon. They're not getting up at 6 a.m. like their servants. But the other big change, cultural shift that helps shift dinner is the rise of white collar work. Right. So aristocrats, they don't have to work. Right. But doctors, lawyers, bankers, shop clerks, people working in factories, your day starts early. Your lunch is much more restricted by industrial time. And so your big meal of the day is in the evening when you get home, because that's when you have time. So the history of food and of fads really are sort of linked with the way that we work, the way that we live and how that sort of changes over time. Which brings us beautifully and neatly to the invention of breakfast cereal. And of course, when we think about breakfast cereal, okay, I was just in my shop and there's this huge, bewildering array of different breakfast cereals and brightly coloured packages all vying for my attention. I guess we should start with the Kellogg story because did they invent Warm Flakes? Did they invent the breakfast cereal? I mean, that's kind of where I imagine it comes from. And I, I saw the movie years ago, Road to Wellville, which was about Mr. Kellogg and how much of that was true in the pocket. Well, okay, I haven't actually seen the movie, so I <laughs> really? can't... <laughs> I can't remember. I, I tried I to refresh can't. myself. I'm like, I, I'm sure they did a movie. I'm sure Anthony Hopkins was in a movie playing. I should watch. It's based on a novel, yes. right? It's, so the novel is based on some of the history. I don't know how much of it actually is true. I should probably watch it and do a little fact check. But the Kellogg brothers, John Harvey and William Keith, Kellogg, and this is an interesting story, I think, that doesn't really get told as much about the Kellogg brothers, is they were Seventh-day Adventists. Tell me about the Seventh-day Adventists. They're not so big in the UK, I don't think. No, it's definitely an American religion. I'm a little fuzzy on the religious aspect That's of it. That's okay. But the Fuzzy's food good. history aspect of it is that they were vegetarian. Yeah, they're quite strict, aren't they? I think that's the kind of main thing. They, you know, there's no promiscuity eat properly. Celibacy was another. Celibacy, no masturbation. That was the yeah. thing. When I've been telling people I'm doing a thing about cornflakes, they always say, oh, they invented to stop people masturbating. Sort of. <laughs> sort of. I mean, I think... Sounds a bit kind of, uh, <laughs> really? I'm like, how does that work? So vegetarianism in general in the Western world is very closely tied to religion. And it's tied to this sort of concept that animal flesh, you know, would bring out urges in people, mm-hmm. mostly sexual urges, right? It was kind of in, in line with the more 18th century, you know, balancing of the humors style of medicine. You can kind of understand why as well. You, you know, when we think about the sins of the flesh, if you are of that persuasion, if you're religious and you think about the sins of the flesh and then, well, here's some flesh on a plate. You can imagine how people would join the dots. Well, and there's also the, you know, aggression and violence aspect of having to kill an animal, dress it, and then cook it and eat it, right? So there was a lot of rhetoric around that being not the religious ideal, right? To commit that violence, engage in that, and then there was this thought that eating animal flesh would make you more aggressive, make you have sexual urges, make you more violent, right? And also, there's definitely some classism at play, right? So (laughs) there always is. So John Harvey Kellogg, so he's a seven-day Adventist. 
Before John Harvey Kellogg, there is no such thing as boxes of breakfast cereal in the supermarket. So there were a couple people who were kind of experimenting, and there okay. were definitely packaged hot breakfast cereals, like, like porridge. For, well, we've had yes. porridge presumably for obviously for a long time, which is sort of just oats and water and salt, a bit of milk. Yeah, depends how Spartan you're feeling. As a Scot, I grew up eating porridge at school, so I'm familiar with that. But so tell us about Mr. Kellogg. So other than being a, an Adventist, what did he do, and where was he based, and how did he come up with this idea? Yeah, so John Harvey Kellogg was trained medical doctor, quite a good one, got to be quite famous. And the Seventh-day Adventists opened what they called a sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan. The church actually started the Battle Creek, Michigan sanitarium. It's interesting, they chose the word sanitarium, but a lot of other places called themselves sanatoriums. What's the difference but- between a sanit... Because I always think of sanitarium as being like a, yeah, as a medical place, and a sanatorium, isn't that a sort of mental health... Isn't there a- yeah, they're essentially places where people who are ill, who cannot be cured by conventional medicine at uh, okay. the time, yeah. go somewhere to live, essentially, and be treated. The Battle Creek Sanitarium was very much focused on like stomach illnesses, right? People who had dyspepsia, indigestion, constipation, things like that. But it also was kind of like very fashionable among the wealthy to go and like take the cure, right? It's very much related to spa culture. Oh, that's um, interesting. So it was, yeah. it was a bit of a status thing, a bit like, I don't know, I, I th- sort of the Betty Ford Clinic where celebrities go and wean themselves off booze and drugs. And- well, and if you think about what medicine was like in the 19th century, people would go there to wean themselves off of opium. <laughs> Well, and, presum- and presumably medicine in the 19th century was just not regulated in any sense. No, I mean, obviously, there were universities that were training doctors, but a lot of doctors, particularly in the early 19th century, you trained by apprenticeship. So if you trained with a terrible doctor, (laughs) you were going to be a terrible doctor. There was a lot of institutional inertia in accepting new research and new science. For instance, Lister and germ theory took a long time for some doctors to accept that. But by the end of the 19th century, medicine is professionalizing. It's getting more and more scientific. People are doing more and more scientific studies. And So what year are we talking about here? So the Battle Creek Sanatorium, Sanitarium? So they found it in 1866, but John Harvey Kellogg takes over in the 1870s. Okay. So it's just after the American Civil War, it's founded, and it's mm-hmm. it's around for about 10 years, and then they bring John Harvey Kellogg in to, to run it. And he's the one who really helps make it quite famous. Okay. So tell us about the food. So the, here they are, all these people come to this sanitarium to get healthy. And what are they doing? Are they sort of doing exercises and what's the sort of daily routine of a... Or the Battle Creek Sanitarium. Yeah, so they have hydrotherapy. They have, you know, kind of calisthenics. It's in a really beautiful park atmosphere, right? People are getting fresh air. He called his approach clean living or biologic Mm -hmm. living, right? So it was about controlling not only the environment that you're in, but also what you're taking in. You know, they did things like yogurt enemas, (laughs) There was I read, yeah, sunbathing. I, looked, I thought that maybe was a was nonsense, and I was sort of was looking. But he, so yoga enemas. So you'd have a normal well, enema. So it's very interesting. So he kind of understood bacteria and germ theory, and understood that you had gut flora, like microbiome stuff, right? 
So he thought, well, let's reset your gut flora by giving you yogurt enema, not realizing that you can just eat yogurt and the bacteria will survive to your It's a bit like, you know, people have like, don't people have like fecal transplants? They do. In a a sort of similar kind of way to sort of reset your... um, Yes, the, the maybe that's just a hipster of, thing. Is that I don't well, know. Well, the whether. science of gut flora is is actually I think it's kind of exciting it's because really it's this this new feel like we don't really understand exactly how the bacteria in our gut interact with human health, right? But they could hold the key to a lot of things like obesity, like why our bodies are hoarding fat or not hoarding fat, why our bodies are digesting some things really well and some things not really well. So it's interesting. A lot of the modern take on healthy food, like whole grains, lots of fruits and vegetables, things like that, are actually considered healthy because they are not easy to digest. It's really interesting how that kind of comes and goes. Everything's like, yes, you want to have lots of starchy food and vegetables. And then it's like, no, you know, the Atkins diet. It's like, no, you just want to eat meat and just protein and no carbohydrates. And yeah, or paleo. Like, keto paleo, is a new yeah. thing. We could do a yeah. whole other episode okay, on, well, on fatty on diets. <laughs> fatty hipster um, diets. So it was really, I think, the thing that had the biggest impact on people's health at the Battle Creek Sanitarium is that it was no caffeine, yeah. so no coffee and tea, be, no alcohol, no smoking, no yeah. sex. Yeah, that's it, the whole thing. It just sounds no fun. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> yeah, but no meat, you know, no really rich, so why rich would, so food. You said it's a sort of bit of a status symbol place. So were they genuinely ill, people who would go there, or were they just going to have a sort, of, go, that were, sort, of, de- that sort of detox and in inverted commas? Yeah, there definitely were genuinely ill people. Right. Um, C.W. Post is one of them. Who's CW Post? CW Post. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but that's okay. CW Post ends up working in the Battle Creek Sanitarium because he can't afford to pay the fees. So he works in order to get treatment. And he works in the kitchens. And he ends up seeing the process by which they're making breakfast cereals and goes and starts his own breakfast cereal empire. But he's there because he has really intense stomach and gastrointestinal problems his whole life and sadly for him they never get better okay so let's talk about the food so no masturbating no having a nice time nothing at all but let's talk about the food so how did the breakfast cereal phenomena start so john harvey kellogg was really interested in the use of grains as meat substitutes Mm -hmm. as coffee substitutes he invented a coffee substitute and i'm forgetting the name of it he invented a granose, which is like a vegetarian meat substitute, right? So he was really interested in the power of, of whole grains in general. And he thought, well, let's invent some kind of breakfast that's not heavy, not fatty, not hot. There was some thought at the time that consuming hot or cold foods might also have an impact on your health. So they come up with this granola, basically is what they call it, or granula, which is essentially a whole grain rusk. It's an unsweetened, twice-baked, chemically leavened, so like baking soda, baking powder, leaven. It's basically a biscotti. It's probably the most common thing would, of that's a rusk today that people yeah. know about, but no sugar. Where would they and then they crumbled in- it up okay. and served it with milk. So, okay, so where would they have got their ideas from? Like you say biscotti. So had they sort of looked at sort of biscotti in Europe, for example? So I know, well, why don't we do something 
So I, I said biscotti because that's the closest thing that modern people would recognize. But yeah. rusks is what it's technically called. Mm-hmm. That's a food and a term that goes back really to the 18th century. So that was a familiar thing. It's very austere food. You know, it's oh. kind of related to hardtack. Yeah. And we used to have was... a thing called Farley's Rusks. Do you remember Farley's Rusks? I used to, okay, it's, maybe it's a UK thing. It was like a kind of round biscuit and they were called Farley's Rusks. And they were delicious. And you used to put some hot milk and they used to kind of melt and they were... Yeah, sorry, very similar. Sounds like. Anyway. It's essentially, you're baking a little a little leavened biscuit, mm-hmm. I guess we could call it. And then you bake it again. So it takes all the moisture out of it, but it keeps that kind of holy structure. Got it. A biscuit. Um, twice and it gets very hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Biscuit, right? The biscuit. Uh, gets very hard and so they would kind of crumble that up so they were like these little granules and pour milk on that similar to probably grape nuts yeah. today is probably where the closest did, thing that's it. but where did, i mean presumably i mean how where did the milk thing come into it because it's kind of an odd thing to do to suddenly go okay well i can understand how you get breakfast cereal from like broken biscuits that were crunched up you know basically that's kind of granola but at what point do you go i know we're going to throw some milk on it that's going to taste nice so americans and i think also in the uk are Essentially obsessed with cow's milk. We'll just say it. The well, United we have States, that genetic propensity to drinking. Some cultures, I think, that you can't. Yes, cow's milk. yeah. Northern Europe and the UK, not a lot of lactose intolerance in those countries. In the United States, the ruling class is largely made up of people from those regions, or their ancestors came from those regions. And the United States is very well suited agriculturally to dairy production, especially in the Northeast and the Great Lakes region. There's lots of water. There's, you know, abundant pasture. It's not too hot. It doesn't get too, too cold in the wintertime. We do get a lot of snow in the Great Lakes region. But so New York, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, all huge, huge dairy producing states. And so Kellogg's was okay with milk. He was like, he was so fastidious about everything. But milk was a... Well, so a a lot of vegetarians, milk provides the protein right? Milk and legumes, but dairy products, particularly cream. There's also a raw food, vegan diet that comes around the turn of the 20th century, and it's fruit and raw vegetables and milk and cream. That makes sense. So we've got a seven-day Adventist who's very, very strict morally and, you know, no masturbation, no sex, no coffee, no sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We've got a lot of an abundance of milk, We've got a search for a sort of new breakfast for the sanatorium. So where does the cornflake come into that? If we've kind of got basically a granola or granula, is it called, did they call it granula? I think they called it granula because someone else had already made something called there's, granola. Well, that's the, we're going to get to this in a bit. there was like a yeah. little court battle over it. Yeah, there's, there's a lot yeah. of kind of litigious story coming up, I think. This. But oh, so, there's lots of litigation. So let's, let's talk about cornflakes then, because the classic cornflake. Yeah, Where, so, how did that happen? So if we're going to talk about cornflakes, we have to talk about Willie Kay, Willie Kay Kellogg. So Who he? William, Who? Oh, William he's the Keith, brother. He's the brother. Yes, William yeah. Keith Kellogg is John Harvey Kellogg's younger brother. He is not a medical doctor. He had kind of gone out and tried his hand at a couple different business things. He had great business acumen. And so Kellogg brings it back and says, I need help running the sanitarium. Come help me run the sanitarium. And so William says, sure, okay, I'll come back and do it. But... John Harvey Kellogg is kind of a jerk (laughs) to his younger brother. And that's probably understating it. I mean, it's a doctor. He already has a huge ego. He's running this Battle Creek Sanitarium. I'm sure he thinks he's God's gift to everyone. And so his little brother ends up being kind of his peon, right? 
literally, you know, Willie Kay, kind of a chubby guy, not super good looking. John Harvey Kellex is tall, thin, very magnetic personality guy. And, and Willie Kay is sort of his nerdy younger brother. And John Harvey Kellogg does horrible things. He has him, you know, John Harvey Kellogg's going for a bicycle ride and Willie Kay has to like run after him to take notes on his ideas. He has to take notes while John Harvey Kellogg's in the bathroom. Like really horrible story. (laughs) We'll be back after this short break. In April 1982, armed forces from the United Kingdom and Argentina went to war over the Falkland Islands. This month, 40 years later, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out what this conflict was all about and what it was like to fight on either side. The sea harriers were flying over when they attacked us. They trusted us and we felt we had let them known. I really don't know whom I would be now if I had not gone through that experience when I was 19 years old. You can't take a submarine prisoner, you know, you have to find it and you have to destroy it. It's bloody harsh business. And if it goes wrong, it goes catastrophically wrong. To follow along, tune in every Friday to the Warfare Podcast from History Hit. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., is really involved in the production of these breakfast cereals. And so granula had been a mix of whole grains and they, they were wanted to try something with corn. So I'd said previously corn is abundant in the United States and they wanted to try a different process. So they, they had made this dough, this corn-based dough. And the semi-apocryphal story is that it got left out and forgotten about. And so it, the dough fermented Right. And they came back and they're like, oh, all this dough fermented, but we're going to try and use it anyway. And they like roll it out into these thin flakes. They've been trying to make a flaked cereal and they roll it out of these thin sheets and they bake it. And when they come out, they're thin and they're crisp and they break them up into little bits and they have these little flakes and they're super crisp. And, you know, you pour milk on them and they stay crisp. Voila. They don't get soggy very quickly. People loved it. They were obsessed with this breakfast cereal. I wonder, there's so many apocryphal stories like that in science where things get left out and forgotten. I think of obviously things like penicillin. It's like, oh, I just left the Petri dish out and lo and behold. I wonder, what do you think? I mean, as a historian, do you think it was, do we like that because it's a good story or is it? I think it probably actually happened. I mean, I've heard other people say, oh, they left it out and it got moldy. And I was like, nobody's going to use it if it's moldy. (laughs) But fermented, that, Mm -hmm. that makes sense, right? So that's a chemical change a chemical process that you can replicate mm-hmm. right so the cornflakes that was all willie k he, he can claim that, just that. He, ha- he happened to be in the kitchen at the time 
Well, he was working on developing new recipes. Oh, I see. Okay, so he was very specifically trying yeah, to... Yeah, after okay, the success of Granula, yeah. they were like, let's expand this line, let's experiment. He was the one who was running the kitchen, because, of course, John Harvey Kellogg is, A, being an actual doctor and seeing patients, and also he's Busy the face of the sanitarium. He's out there <laughs> glad-handing with all the rich people, checking up on them, that kind of stuff. So Willie Kay is the one who's in the kitchen and taking notes. Right. That's the important thing. He really did it as if it was a science because it was. And so that's how he was able to replicate it. And so basically, did he replicate what I am now eating? Yes. Was, was it Was it exactly, was this it? I don't think the formula changed significantly. Because I'm, I mean, I'm just looking at the, I'm looking at the, uh, I mean, look at the instructions, not the instructions, the ingredients. Toasted flakes of golden corn. Ingredients, maize. And then it's got sugar, barley malt flavoring and salt. So would he have added sugar to it then? Because they are, I have to say, I mean, even though you think of cornflakes as not being a, a sweet breakfast cereal, you know, frosties or frosted flakes covered in sugar, but there's still a lot of sugar in there that makes them palatable. So that was actually the thing that led to the falling out between John Harvey and Willie Kay, which is John Harvey, you know, Willie Kay saw the potential, the commercial potential of these breakfast cereals. And John Harvey was like, no, it's going to be an exclusive thing to the sanitarium. If you want it, you have to come here. You have to pay for it. You have to pay for the treatment. And Willie Kay was like, listen, this is super popular. Our guests want to take it home. This can be really big. So he leaves. He breaks away. He starts his own breakfast cereal company. And one of the things that they argue about also is sugar. Willie Kay wants to put sugar in there to make it a little more palatable. John Harvey Kellogg says, absolutely not. That's not you know, the healthful food that we're offering. Because he really saw food as medicine. These foods were to treat ill people. And Willie Cave was like, <laughs> This is where we can make some money. <laughs> listen, the rich bankers who are coming here working desk jobs, they're not doing hard manual labor. They don't need a big giant breakfast in the morning. And people who are working on a time clock. Yeah. Oh, that's it's really fast. So was the was the success of it down to the flavor and the taste, or was the success of it down to the fact that it's really convenient and actually suddenly we've got a, you know, you don't have to eat leftovers and you don't have to cook things anymore. And actually, where did that sort of shift in behavior come, and and how did the cornflake fit into that shift? So I think there's two things at play. I think initially it's the the newness of it, right? It's Having crunchy, delicate foods with the creamy cold milk on it, that was a new kind of flavor and texture experience for people in the 1880s and 90s, right? It's not mush. It's not eggs and fried meat. It's not bread. It's a new thing. So I think that was initially why people were kind of so enamored of it. But once it gets on the market, which is a story in and of itself, once it gets on the open market, the thing that gives it the staying power, I think, is the sheer convenience of it. Well, so what was it up against? So, so, we've, so Will Kellogg, he's now got his breakfast cereal company. People like it because there's, you know, this, as you say, this novelty as well as it tastes good. Was there then a kind of an explosion of breakfast cereals like we see today? Or, or what, what, to, to take us through that little timeline, if you can. So it's interesting that the first couple of decades of the, the 20th century, so like 1900, 1910, into the 1920s, there are a lot of other breakfast cereals that kind of proliferate. C.W. Post, with the Postum Cereal Company being one, he invents grape nuts. Which is like kind of granola. like Which is kind of like granula, right? John, what John Harvey Kellogg invented, again, with a little bit of sugar mm. in there. 
But a lot of the marketing around breakfast cereal at that time had to do with the healthfulness of it, right? And so there's this this idea that it's a whole grain. It's very healthful. It's coming out of these sanitariums. CW Post also was very interested in the health aspects of cereal. And it's really not, although people consume it as convenience, the marketing doesn't really start to change until the mid-20th century, and then for sure after World War II, when we have abundant access to sugar and there's huge ramp-up of industrialization and industrial processing, that's when breakfast cereal really starts to, to change. And it seems as well around about that time, I mean, I grew up in the 1970s, and it seems that all the kind of breakfast cereals when I was a kid, they were really, really geared towards children. The packets were colourful and they had cartoon characters. I mean, think of you know Rice Krispies and Frosties with the tiger and, and all these things. They were Was that a conscious thing? It's like, okay, well, actually, kids like sweet things. We're just going to market these cereals as kind of kind of healthy, but not that healthy. Well, he- healthy for the, so the parents buy it because they think, they think we're doing good things, but the kids also like it because pump full of sugar. So the other big cultural change that takes place post-war, and it starts a little bit in the 20s and 30s with radio, is marketing directly to children. Right, because what do we get in the 1950s and 60s? We get children's television. So that allows advertisers to market directly to children rather than to their parents. And so kids like sweet, sugary things, right? It's a little bit of an evolutionary thing. Their brains are growing, their bodies are growing, they need the calories. But they also respond to advertisements, they respond to mascots, they respond to prizes, that's in the other the thing. That, yeah, you get because you know specifically breakfast cereals rather than lunch cereals or anything else. Was that to sort of tap into this idea that as parents we feel terribly guilty about our children? We've been brought up to think breakfast is really important, and so it, it also for us as parents it kind of it sort of taps into that. That's part of it. I think trying to get kids out the door into school at a specific time as part of it. I think in the 1950s and 60s, really into the 1990s, there's still a lot of rhetoric about the healthfulness of dairy and the importance of dairy in children's diets. That dates back to the 1860s. So we've had 100 years of this concept that dairy is an essential food for children. And part of that has to do with the composition of milk. It has fat, it has carbohydrate, and it has protein all in one, if you're not lactose intolerant, easily digestible package, right? That was a huge part of the marketing, I think, of the healthfulness of breakfast. And then also just that if you don't eat anything in the morning, especially for children, it can be very difficult to concentrate. They get lethargic. There was a lot of rhetoric and interest in children's energy levels, which is part of why sugar gets so marketed as this good thing for children because it gives them energy, right? Refined white sugar is essentially a pure carbohydrate that just gets instantly mainlined by our bodies. I'm aware of it. (laughs) But if you look at the advertising from that time period, it's like, oh, the kids who don't eat breakfast are tired and they're lethargic and they don't pay attention in school and they get bad grades. And, you know, that was all part of the advertising. Yeah, well, I suppose the 1950s, God, I mean, I think you think about sort of tobacco advertising in the 1950s and just how utterly pervasive and persuasive it was. And I, it, it was it the 50s, I suppose that's when we saw the proliferation of different breakfast cereals. So suddenly you may have gone from, am I right in thinking, you know, okay, gr- granola type things, grape nuts, cornflakes. When did we suddenly get into kind of Captain Crunch, Fruit Loops, the kind of so- crazy, the kind of crazy cereals that I grew up with in the 1970s? 
So the the other cultural change that's happening Frosties. to influence how we purchase and consume breakfast cereals mm. is the rise of the grocery store. Oh, yes. Because presumably the fact that they're in nice square boxes means they're easily storage and everything else. Advertising directly to children plays a huge role, but also in the late 1940s. I mean, in the United States, our first grocery stores were like in the 19-teens, 1920s, but they don't really proliferate across the country until after World War II. And so instead of going to five separate stores, a bakery, a butcher, a green grocer, you know, whatever, you're suddenly going to one location. You've got your big post-war car that you can drive. There's the development of the shopping cart. So instead of bringing a little basket on your arm and going every day or getting food delivered to your house by phone, that was a huge thing prior to World War II. You know, you are interacting with the products without supervision, right? You're doing it on your own. So the food itself actually develops alongside all these other innovations, all these other inventions and and changes changes in our behavior. Yeah. So that's where you get the colorful boxes. That's where you get the colorful labels. That's where you start to get you know, ingredient and nutrition labels is because yeah. customers need to be able to access that information themselves. And presumably the box itself, because I, I can't believe the, I mean, presumably the original cornflakes back in Mr. Will Kellogg's day wasn't in a box. It would have been in a bag because the box they, seems to be quite a modern, I always think of the, sort of the Andy Warholness of the Kellogg's cornflakes box. It's square. It's easily packed. It goes on a shelf. So they did have cardboard boxes hmm. but they were and they did have printing on them but not the colorful kind of ad man printing that we think of today they were packaged i believe in waxed paper bags yeah. but you have to have them in a box because if they're in a bag they'll get crushed so yeah. you have to have some sort of you know rigid container so that the cornflakes don't turn into corn powder what happened to the prizes i, I remember the the whole point about buying cereal and it was i would pass to my mother i was like I want to go inside and get the free transfers or the kind of lenticular lens thing or whatever it was. There was always a fun like stickers and that kind of stuff. And it would actually be inside the cereal, actually inside where the, where the food is. That seems to have vanished, sadly. I know. I grew up with that too. That was, that was in, in the 19, you know, early 90s. That was still a thing. I'm not sure what happened to it. Now it seems to be like go online and play this game. Yeah, I know. I think it's very disappointing. <laughs> So there we go. So a really sort of interesting story. Do people still buy cereal as much as we used to, or are we sort of phasing out? I mean, I've noticed actually just today looking at the cereal, I don't eat a lot of cereal, but it's, I mean, maybe it's just the shop I go to, but it's all very much back towards sort of health, health, health. This is healthy. There's lots of kind of wackaging packages of, of like appealing to different sort of demographics to me. It's all very different. Yeah, so I can't speak too much to the UK, but here in the United States, one of the things that I've noticed that's interesting is you're not really getting new cereals. You're just getting new flavors of cereal. And new packaging as well. Yeah, oh yeah. And they new, have and it's all just sort of repackaged in different yeah. ways. I mean, granola, there's loads of granolas, but this time it's all like only 1% sugar and it's all, you know, it's all very much geared towards completely different kinds of marketing. Whereas the Kellogg's Cornflake box, I mean, the one I'm, I mean... It's exactly this, or pretty much exactly the same. You know, the typeface is slightly changed, but that's about. Well, it. I think you know we could go in depth into the psychology of branding, <laughs> <laughs> but I think for for these companies that have been around for over a hundred years, you know, some of them coming up on one hundred and fifty years, keeping that iconic brand. I mean, that's what people recognize, and introducing new generations to that same 
iconic branding is creating a new generation of brand loyalists, right? I think so. so. I think it's only old people like me who still eat corn. I don't eat cornflakes very. This is the first pack. I've got to say, this is the first packet of cornflakes I've bought in many, many years. <laughs> They're really delicious. Actually, I forgot how good they are. Like, really delicious. I think a lot of it, it has to do with the texture as well as the yeah. taste. Aside from potato chips or crisps, as you would say in the UK, there's not a lot else in our modern lives that gives us that kind of crispy, no, you're right. kind of addictive texture, right? So Yeah. What was your cereal when you were growing up? Did you have a preferred cereal? I was Weetabix. I don't know if you have Weetabix. Do you have Weetabix in the US? I, I think so. Remember. That sounds Maybe familiar. My mom was always pretty cognizant of healthy things and healthy choices and i think it frustrated her that i loved sugary things so much so we ate like frosted flakes and honey nut cheerios and and things like that but my favorite my two favorite growing up which i do still have a little bit of a soft spot for today were cinnamon toast crunch nice and uh Peanut butter Captain Crunch, which I'm See, sure nobody in the UK eats. We know we didn't have Captain Crunch in the UK. We're very, we have sli- we have basically the same cereals, but slightly different sort of marketing. Yeah, so Captain Crunch is like this whole genre of puffed corn. Oh, like we call them, well, we call them sugar puffs, and they're absolutely delicious. Captain Crunch is like hurts your mouth, <laughs> and that's part of the experience. Is the there's yeah. these sharp. You know, like you have this puffed corn thing, and when when you put milk on it, it's it starts to break through the outer shell, the crust of yeah. sugar on the outside. But then it can be fairly sharp, right? The inside that's this almost kind of like a honeycomb mm. texture, right? So kind of how honeycomb candy is, can be yeah. very sharp on your mouth. These cereals are very can be very sharp. So if it's like if you eat too much of it, your mouth starts to hurt. But it's so addictive, you can't yeah. stop eating. <laughs> It's definitely a nostalgia factor, I think, with cereals as well. I mean, I, my kids, they're sort of teenagers now, but they still love the kind of variety packs, you know, the little kind of mini ones you get of all the different cereals. There's just something nostalgic and fun about those. Well, and I think also, particularly for kids, again, Gen X and younger, breakfast cereal is something that you can make yourself. You don't need an adult to do it. It doesn't require a stove or any heating element exactly saturday morning you can get up you can watch cartoons and you can have fun opening eating breakfast cereal yeah you can get up at 6 a.m or 5 a.m or whenever your parents don't have to make breakfast for you you can do it yourself if you get home from school you know if you're a latchkey kid which is what Mm -hmm. we called them Mm -hmm. in the u.s right so your parents are still at work you're like 12 and older and you have a key to the house and you go in and you just lock the door and Hang out and watch TV and eat a snack and wait for your parents to get home. Good times. Good times. They don't don't let people do that anymore, really. (laughs) They do. My kids do that. I'm I'm a terrible parent. We've got a couple of minutes left. I just want to ask you, just to finish off the story between the two Kellogg's brothers, I'm looking at my cornflakes box. The famous Kellogg's logo, was that actually one of the Kellogg's signature? Did they actually do that? Or was this completely made up? That's a good question. I've been sort of wondering Um, about that for a while. I don't know the answer to that one, but if it is anyone's signature, it's going to be Willie's. Was there a kind of falling out? I mean, so Willie went on to make the cornflakes. We talked about yeah. litigation. Yes, exactly. Let's let's end on litigation. Willie K, W.K. Kellogg, leaves the sanitarium. He's like, I invented this cornflakes breakfast cereal. I'm going to start my own breakfast cereal company. And he does, and he calls it Kellogg's. And John Harvey is enraged by this. He's like, I'm the inventor of breakfast cereal. I started Granula. This is my idea. It belongs to the Battle Creek Sanitarium. And he starts his own company and then tries to sue Willie Kay for using the Kellogg name. 
dough. But the problem is that by the time John Harvey starts his own business, Willie Kay's Keller Company is already hugely popular. That's the cereal that most Americans recognize. So when John Harvey takes Willie to court, the court decides in favor of Willie because they say, he beat you to it. This is the brand that everybody recognizes and he's already established. So John Harvey lost that court case. So he continues to manage the Battle Creek Sanitarium, but it's Willie Kay who makes the fortune. Who knew the history of breakfast cereal was loaded with so much story and and interesting innovation and (laughs) weirdness? John Harvey Kellogg just sounds like an absolute nightmare well i think he did probably help people he was quite a good doctor but his his interpersonal relationships with his family (laughs) probably could have used some work definitely definitely we've sort of run out of time but sarah thank you so much for coming and talking about cornflakes you kind of spurred me on to buy a box of cornflakes and try them and and remember what they taste like so thank you very much and will you come on again and do another food history uh, i would love to origins because there's so many fantastic stories when i was looking at some of your work and you you just cover some really really interesting stuff so i would love to have you back on the show if that's possible i would love to come back this is super fun Okay, that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you very much for listening. Today's episode featured music from Epidemic Sound. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review telling us what you liked about the show so we can keep doing more of it. I'll be back every Wednesday and Sunday with brand new episodes. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Folk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.